for me, it came out of an environmental passion, but eventually, of course, you also have to make a living. And if you can have a gainful living and a meaningful um, living, then I think that's a pretty good life. Welcome to Profile Central Wisconsin, a podcast about the origins of the organizations that make our community thrive. I'm Benjamin Nuss, your co-host and the campus dean of Mid-State Technical College's Stevens Point campus. As always, I'll be joined by Todd Kukon, executive director of the Portage County Business Council. On this episode of Profile, Todd and I visit with Josh Dolzenberg, CEO and co-owner of Northwind Solo. You know how sometimes people will cut the bottom of a flyer to create those little removable tabs? Well, Josh saw one on a street lamp in Madison, and instead of just walking by, he pulled the tab, and it was the first step in his educational journey. It took him to the other side of the world, but he eventually ended up back in central Wisconsin, where he founded Northwind Solar. Installers of solar electric, battery storage, and electric vehicle charging systems, Northwind was recently named the 2020 Wisconsin Renewable Energy Business of the Year. Back in 2017, Northwind transitioned from an LLC to a worker-owned cooperative. So Todd and I also have a lot of questions about this business model and leadership structure. Josh not only tells the story of Northwind, but he gives a great primer on cooperative worker ownership. You're sure to learn as much as we do. Here's Josh. Mid-State was one of the first technical colleges in the state to offer renewable energy training. However, we didn't offer our first program until 2008. So Josh, how did you learn this trade? Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and in, in your educational journey. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I first was introduced to, to solar when I was in Mozambique. I spent a year there at a um, doing international how did you how did you get to Mozambique <laughs> you <laughs> I, gotta go back a little bit further well I think I was living in Madison and I saw a flyer on a, a street lamp with tabs to pull I was <laughs> you looking pulled for, a tab yeah I pulled a tab I was looking for something uh, more interesting to do than being a line cook in Madison and I called them up checked it out and got really interested in the program that they they were offering what program was it it was um, it was a a nonprofit called the Institute for International Cooperation and Development. I have a history with at least four letter acronym <laughs> organizations, um, and it involved a six month training period, um, learning the language and the culture of the country, uh, fundraising, and then we spent a year in fairly remote villages in, in Mozambique doing some basic development work, sanitation. Pre K education, um, anti AIDS work, that sort of thing. But some solar. But then there was a piece of it that was called your investigation period, in which you spent a few weeks um, inv investigating something that was interesting to you and useful to the school or the community project that you were working at. And they, uh, the school that I was at, was interested in starting some remote. Pedagogical centers um, where there was no power, and so they wanted to investigate solar power as a potential community power source. So I spent a few weeks doing as much investigation as I could, really without much internet in rural Mozambique. So you're you're trying to figure out how to electrify a school in yeah. Mozambique. In what what year is this? Two thousand. In two thousand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely <laughs> yeah. no internet. Right. 
Um, so I ended up putting together the, the basic information into a pamphlet for them. It wasn't, it wasn't anything significant, and I don't know if it went anywhere after I left, but that, that sort of sparked my interest. And then once I moved to um, Stevens Point in 2002, I was looking for uh, meaningful nonprofit work, and I found the Midwest Renewable Energy Association and started volunteering there and, and taking their courses. And so volunteering, oh, there, did you did you apply for the job at the Emory? I, I applied for a membership coordinator position, and I didn't get it. You didn't get it. <laughs> but I eventually got to work there through a work study and then eventually became staff, and I went through there. So to work study, you must have been going to school? I did. I went to school in order to get the work study. <laughs> Normally, I, so I so I accrued about fifteen thousand dollars in college debt <laughs> in order to get into the renewable energy field by not studying it at college. It's not the typical path. <laughs> it's but. not. Yeah. You mentioned the pull tab. You're interested in solar, but what brought you to the point where you you gain the interest in solar energy and in that kind of work? I mean, I, I think I've I've always been in in my adult life interested in sustainability, and certainly once. I came out of that that volunteer experience and came here and was introduced into the MREA and, and more thoroughly grounded in uh, fossil resource depletion and global warming. I, I looked at, at renewables as a part of the solution to those pretty big problems. <laughs> so yeah. then, then it's a matter of just learning the trade and being able to apply those things in real life, which as Ben knows, takes takes a little bit of time. It's not just a, an easy thing to do. Yeah. So Josh, our paths go go way back in 2006. You and I were actually part of a group of 20-somethings that went around to local colleges to give informational presentations on renewable energy. We called it Power Up. I gave the presentations on solar water heating, and you covered the wind portion. And at that point, I asked you why you were interested in wind energy generation. Your response, if you remember, was, I like spinny things. <laughs> so r- really, uh, what, what drew you to this technology? Did you have mentors? Did you have um, individuals that, that you looked up to? Yeah, I still like spinny things. Um, <laughs> but really, I was interested in all the technologies back then. Um, working at the MREA, I went through their all their non-traditional workshops on all the different renewable energy technologies three to four times over. So I was getting introduced to all of it pretty thoroughly. And I was kind of a generalist and just doing a lot of site assessments, which Ben, you used to do a lot of, um, which is a basic form of consulting for homeowners to just look at the viability of, of solar or wind for their property. Um, and and eventually I realized that there was so much to know about each technology that I probably had to pick one. <laughs> and I guess I found the wind to be the most challenging and maybe the, the mentors, basically the MREA's instructors, made it seem like the most interesting thing to pursue at the time. So that, and my, my short answer then was I like spinny things. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and how did you gain any installation experience, right? This was a time when the market was, was fairly small. So, you know, MidState wasn't around to offer this technical training. So where did, you, where did you pick up the technical skills? 
Yeah, I didn't I didn't get much. I, I mean, the only the only access I had was through MREA's hand hands on workshops, with they, which they would do occasionally, and you'd you'd be a part of a, a class putting together either a wind system or a solar electric or a solar thermal system. Um, but that and that was great. I mean, it was a wonderful introduction, but it wasn't the sort of repetition and take the responsibility for yourself that you need to, to learn it really well. So it wasn't until I worked for another company that, that it really got some experience. Um, you founded Northwind Renewable Energy in 2007. So what was your initial business model and what markets were we really looking to enter? I don't think I was savvy enough to think in terms of a business model at that point. I just wanted, I wanted to be in central Wisconsin and there weren't paying jobs in, in renewables at that time. And, and so I, I wanted to create that job for myself. And the, I think the model was, or the, the market at the time wasn't much beyond um, homeowners that were environmentally minded and that had disposable income enough to, to be able to invest in a, in, a, in the technology. Early adopters, um, that's grown very significantly since that time. Uh, but yeah, it was about, about the extent of the market at the time. So were you initially going to work in, in just solar or wind or what sort of technologies did you, did you plan to, to work with? Well, I was focused on wind and, um, I know we'll talk a bit about my business partners later, but, uh, they, the people that I ended up taking on as business partners had interests in the other technologies within that sphere. So we really, we ended up wanting to tackle the entire array of technologies. I heard you had a room in your basement that was just full of whiteboards. Was this true or did you have any formal business planning advice? I had a room in a basement that was not mine full of whiteboards and a bed. Just a bed? And whiteboards. Yeah. Right? This is the entire thing. So this yeah. this is was the where where the origin story really of, of Northwind is. Yeah. What was on those whiteboards? Uh, well, I had to figure out all of the stuff that I had never interacted with in terms of like incorporating a business and and getting registered and getting tax IDs and and. Um, getting you know vendors and credit and all that stuff is was was completely foreign to me so I was just trying to figure out all that basic stuff and I kept notes on it and I sort of had a lot of um, circles with lines connecting other circles and that, that sort of stuff to just sort of conceptualize what I was doing and what I needed to, to figure out yet that I hadn't figured out and so that I mean if you want to call that business planning I guess it's a version of it <laughs> did, did did you get formal business advice later on we got we did employ a third party to help us work through some business planning so let's move forward a little bit 2008 2009 the ownership expanded so you must have founded this company but it expanded to add three new owners Carl Schwingel Craig Butke and, and Jethro Flugel um, why grow the ownership Right. You know, this isn't a partnership. You went from one owner to four owners. What sort of assets or skills did did each of these people bring? Yeah, well, I quickly I mean, through those whiteboard sessions, quickly realized that I didn't have all the skills that I needed to do this successfully. Right. And I was um, certainly I was never a part of the trades. I wasn't a, a, a DIY person. I just didn't have a lot of hands on experience. Um, and the first 
person that I brought on, Carl Schwingel, did. He was sort of a jack of all trades and really was a mirror or sort of offered a very complimentary skill set to you got to admit it's rather bold to start an installation company without a lot of installation experience. yeah right <laughs> so so you sought out some some other talent did any of them bring the the maybe the depth of a business plan you were looking for or did you still reach out to a you said a third party what what came out of that that third party sort of consultant work on business planning was that we were not doing good at specializing into roles into the business. And so coming out of that, we started to do that. And I became more of the business um, administrative sales side. And they, they, they landed in the installation and project planning side of the business. If you were to stand in front of a group of entrepreneurs, how much would you beat them up about having a business plan. You learn probably maybe more by not having one and going through what you went through, but what's the, where does the value of that fit in terms of an entrepreneur who might be listening to this podcast? I, I think a bit, having a business plan is, is helpful. Um, it, more in terms of how to think about your business than what to expect or how accurate to expect your business plan to be because we came out of that business plan. It was pretty, it was pretty ambitious in hindsight, but but a cup a year or two after that, the market completely crashed, and all of those projections and 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 that stuff were out the window, and we pretty much abandoned it. So, I mean, expectations are a pretty important thing to um, check when you're when you're looking at that you know tenfold growth or something like that in your business planning. So with the, with the with the you founding the business two thousand seven, taking on owners in in two thousand eight. When was your first installation job? When did you get your first check? Yeah, 2008 in May. We, Carl and I have been doing some service work on wind turbines and solar thermal systems that were broken or needed needed some help for a few months at least before that. But then we, uh, I landed a $180,000 contract as our first contract, which was just <laughs> mind-blowing. And it was a couple of wind turbines at a horse breeding and housing facility down on the border with Illinois and it was just a very wealthy woman that was willing to uh, hand over that sort of money to a guy in flip-flops, you know, it's pretty <laughs> <Okay>. impressive. <laughs> the, hip, the hip, you like spinny things. So, so, so first off, yeah. you showed so, up just you, because I like spinny things. Yep. You, you showed up for your first sales call in flip-flops. I don't remember if I did or not. I did because we did sell her a large solar electric system a few years later, and I do remember <laughs> closing that deal in flip flops. But we are on more familiar terms then. So, so walk walk me through that first sale. So this was a some wind turbines, right? Yeah. How many? Two of them. Two of them, and so the two ninety thousand dollar pieces of equipment. Yeah. And this was your first sale. Yep. <laughs> so we. One, how did you find the funds to buy this equipment, right? I, I know an, an issue with early startups is always having the cash flow to kind of finance these things. Who, who sold you that, and how did you get the money to buy them to begin with? We never had credit available to us, and none of us had money to front. So it was all a bootstrap, pay-as-you-go situation from the beginning. And so our clients understood that they had to pay for equipment up front. We would order it install it and then they would pay us for our labor and we were able to cash flow things that way. It seems to be a high tolerance from from clients early on. 
But I'm, I imagine at that time there weren't many other wind installers right. that were out there, and so it was a it was a pretty narrow market for them to choose from. Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you think got you that first sale? Back then, site assessments were a requirement to get focus on cent- focus on energy incentives, the state incentive in Wisconsin, and and so doing a lot of those really built up you know, some early goodwill with potential clients. Cause I was just coming in as a, as a consultant and, and giving them, trying to give them good advice and recommendations on what system would work for them. And then once, you know, the installation company was a reality, then we could go back and offer the very things I had recommended. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so, so just, just so everyone's aware, a site assessment means at that time it was an independent third party that would come out to your home or business and then they would provide you with the knowledge and the evaluation of whether solar or wind is going to work. And what was unique in Wisconsin is that in order to get the state incentives, you had to have a site assessment and it had to be from a certified site assessor, which you were at the time. So it gave you a bit of authority in in the industry. And an in with customers. So had you done her site assessment? I did, yeah. And so she came back to you and said, I, I like this guy, flip-flops and all. Yeah. Let, let me give him $180,000 <laughs> yeah, to put yeah. him some wind. Yeah. So this was your, your four first installation. And, and did that then give you some credibility or did it give you some assurance that you might be successful in this field? Yeah, I think, I mean, some credibility and that we could actually point to a thing that existed in the world that we had done. Um, we started doing more solar hot water heating work uh, that summer and eventually our first PV system for a local couple here in Stevens Point who we knew through uh, probably through the energy fair. And so a lot of this is going on in a time when the economy was in tough shape, 2008, 2009. What was, what was your journey during that, during that window in terms of your business plan were, were, were you, how were you impacted not impacted how did that all work if i remember the impact on the housing market here was not nearly as severe as it was in other places and i think because also we were so new and just growing relatively rapidly there was no sort of historical basis to see an impact it would it only improved through those those significant years of the great recession so it didn't really i don't we didn't feel the impact it didn't see it in in our numbers and if and if there was an impact there would be nothing to compare it to to know that there was you know yeah so starting during a crisis wasn't a bad thing for you in that case it wasn't no yeah so many industries require you to complete some sort of an apprenticeship or pass a certification exam. For instance, I can't just become a plumber or an electrician. And so there's credentialing requirements. So were, were there credential requirements to do solar and wind installation work at the state of Wisconsin when you started? Yeah, there was that certified site assessor part of the market that was helpful, um, but doing you, that was just to be eligible for the incentives. You didn't have to be a certified anything right. to install a, a wind machine. There were no sort of no required renewable energy certifications at the t- at early early on for us. We, I mean, needed to maintain a dwelling contractor certification with the state, HVAC contractor with the state, and eventually, 
we had to have uh, electricians on staff to to be able to put solar electric systems in and that continues today we need certified electricians do you feel that those those low barriers to entry helped you found the the company at that time (laughs) yeah i I would say so a lot of the the early companies were really people that wanted to work believed in renewable energy as an as an out of an environmental passion, right? And, and they weren't necessarily coming out of the trades or figuring it out themselves. And a lot of those companies are still around and very good today, right? They're leaders in Wisconsin and in the industry. So that, in that sense, it was good. I think it's, it is important to, to require licensure and, and certifications. At, at this point, we're, we're a pretty mature industry and that should, we should make sure that we're taking care of quality um, and not, not disappointing people. But yeah, I think at the time it was probably helpful. <laughs> so in the, in those early days, your office was here close to Mid-State's downtown Stevens Point campus. In fact, right across the street in, in the same place where MEJ's and, and Main Grain are, are now. So your your office was in this little strip mall. And how long did you guys stay there for? A couple years we were there. Yeah, it was completely inadequate, but we didn't have any money, so it, it served. <laughs> it, it it at least gave you a, a storefront. Yeah, right, right. And we ate MEJs like every day for lunch. So, yeah. yeah, and and if I remember correctly, you you ate them on a table that was made out of solar panels. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your motivation in the in those early days. You know, I think that there's a a different set of motivators for someone in maybe a a solar company that you're in it for environmental reasons or or in it for for social reasons. Were those the things that motivated you or were you interested in just growing your business and and becoming a a successful business? No, it's certainly for me, it came out of an environmental passion, but eventually, of course, you also have to make a living. And if you can have a gainful living and a meaningful um, living, then I think that's a pretty good life. So I, once we got started and we, we were able to start, I was able to start paying myself about 11 months in. So How did you make it those first 11 months? <laughs> well, I, I, I had worked for a company in Madison called Seventh Generation Energy Systems prior to that and was putting in, uh, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks over time on the road, putting in wind tower, wind uh, monitoring towers. And so I, I just saved a lot of money and was able to, to ride it out. In the early 2010s, you're involved in a number of, of different technologies, solar electric, solar heating, wind technologies, and oftentimes contractors will diversify to provide this resilience, right? When one market's down, the other one may be up. And so it kind of stabilizes what your revenues over time. Um, however, at one point, you decide to cut those other technologies out and to put all of your emphasis on just one technology, solar electric systems. What kind of drove your decision to reduce what things you offered? Yeah, I think we had that perspective on diversity of technologies, markets being a good thing early on because it was important for us to have that perspective because when one technology would have a bad year, other other ones would do better and help carry the water for the company. Like when when there was a big downturn in 2012, for PV and wind, solar, thermal, and home home energy retrofits helped carry the day 
and helped us limp through a couple of bad years. But by the time we got to maybe 2015, 2016, um, it was pretty clear that the the great majority of our revenue and our our in-house capacity was was oriented towards solar PV and once we decided to transition to a worker owned co-op that became a conversation and an important one to have of how are we going to focus our business how are we going to succeed here we need to sort of shed some of the dead weight um and and really focus in on our core competencies and we have ended up doing that and, and it's been a great thing. And now, and since we've diversified a little bit in terms of adding um, battery storage and electric vehicle charging and that sort of thing, with but it's all within the same sort of core competency, right? It's a it's a it's a better type of diversity. Let's say. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about about those lean years that that you reference, right? You've made public your revenue um, over the past few years. 2011, you did 1.5 million in revenue, but this almost got cut in half in 2012. What what happened? And and of course, how did, how did you rebound? Was your was your business ever at risk? Yes, it was. Uh, in 2012, so early early on, and really until maybe a couple few years ago, renewable energy technologies needed uh, state and federal subsidies to help get the markets going and buy down some of the cost for for homeowners and businesses. And so we were pretty reliant on state incentives and federal tax credit, USDA grant programs. And in 2012, the administrator of the Focus on Energy program changed and they, to a new company administering the program, and they put a hold on all the incentives for about a year and a half to reevaluate how they wanted to do that and, and get more sort of return to the program or cost efficiency out of their incentives. And that just that just killed the the solar and wind and solar thermal markets for quite a while. And at and at the same time we had been we started to do more agricultural systems or, or systems on farms and the USDA's Rural Energy for America program also changed in a way that sort of penalized solar and wind systems to a degree that they couldn't score well enough to have winning applications for the grants. And so suddenly all of this funding was gone and people just weren't willing to do it. And, and our income dropped almost in half. And we were working, we were working for free for half of those years, um, both years. So it's pretty tough. And it, it started to turn around again once those the focus program came back online and probably wasn't until mid 2014 where we were stabilizing a little bit. So yeah, I've, I've heard this referred to as the solar coaster before where the changing landscape of incentives and grants would dramatically affect the markets. And and what that really is indicating is that the markets needed were, were dependent upon those grants. Do you think that the market has grown to a size that it's more resilient now and, and doesn't depend on those grants for stability? Yeah, but that does not mean that the solar coaster isn't still happening because there's all these other things that it, that our industry is subject to, including inner, you know, global tariffs on on equipment coming from Southeast Asia to supply issues. Ch- China's domestic 
solar policy has had more impact on our lives in the last couple of years than probably anything. It's very strange, like what forces come to bear on your little business in central Wisconsin. But um, yeah, uh, regulatory issues, utility rate cases and meter fees and all of that stuff has a pretty significant impact on the financial performance of these things. More from Josh in a moment. Just a quick break to share some brief announcements. The spring term is now underway, but it's never too late to start exploring a program at MidState, and our midterm start courses are just around the corner. So be sure to visit msdc.edu to learn about all of the programs we offer. Our winter continuing education catalog is also now available, so you can pick up a new professional skill or just enrich your life with a wide array of courses, including live online classes that let you connect with others in a safe at-home environment. You'll even find some free offerings. In addition to connecting businesses, the Portage County Business Council provides networking opportunities for the next generation of community leaders through Ignite Young Professionals. To learn more about Ignite, visit portagecountybiz.com. That's biz with a Z. Now, let's hear more of the story of Northwind Solar with Josh. Northwind transitioned from an LLC with four different owners over to a worker-owned cooperative. You're, you're a construction company and you basically sold the company to your employees. Tell us about this choice and, and what, does it, what does it mean to be a worker-owned company for a construction company? We had a starting place that was a little bit different than other small businesses or other construction companies in that it was already four different owners in an LLC that were not family. We weren't related to each other um, with the exception of that. So I don't know that it was as big a leap in thinking as some other people might require simply because of that. We we're already thinking of ourselves as co-owners and the model is just the co the legal structure that is a worker on co-op is just probably a more robust um, in terms of organizational structure or governance that allows you to think more formally about the same things that we were thinking about as LLC members. But we're, I mean, so I think we're all predisposed to the, the value proposition or the value set that is sort of embedded in a worker co-op model in terms of economic democracy and, and compensating people fairly and, and offering ownership and the, and the opportunity to profit from the company's success. Um, put that out more broadly. But in 2015, I went to a conference on cooperatives put on by the, the UW Center for Co-ops in Madison, which is a great organization and can offer support to people thinking about transitioning their business to worker ownership. Um, but at that conference, there's a panel on worker owners um, talking about how their their businesses work as, as worker-owned co-ops. And there was a solar company on that panel represented by a gentleman by the name of Blake Jones, who had founded Namaste Solar in Boulder, Colorado in the early 2000s and transitioned... Um, that company to worker ownership in maybe 2009 or 10. And, and so they, that was a sort of a revelation and he really sold me on the model itself, the, the structure itself as a really important 
piece of success. So you this, this was this was owner driven. You do you think that you were the driver to? I mean, many people look at this and say you you gave up your company, right? You you had a significant ownership in a company and you gave it up to your employees to to sell it to your employees. Do you view it, view it that way? No, I don't. I don't look at it like that at all. Because here I sit, still an owner of the company and CEO. I mean, uh, we because it, it's it's in oftentimes worker own ownership or transitions to worker ownership is sold to like people that are of retirement age that want to get out of their own LLC or sole proprietorship business, but want their business to go on and want to take care of their employees. And they look at that as a way to sort of transition out and get some money out of the business, but have it persist. And we're, we are all Gen Xers and, and living on both sides of that transaction. We are we were owners of the previous company, and we continue to be owners after after that transition. We continue to have a stake in the outcome and and the ability to to benefit from the company's success. And so, what we wanted to do with the sale price was set it at a level that would compensate the LLC members for um, sweat equity and and all the risk they'd assumed over the first eight years, but not put a debt burden on the new entity that would make it struggle. So it was kind of about balance and going, oh, we think this is enough for us and it won't be too much of a burden for the co-op. And we self-financed it so that we didn't need a bank to get or any other credit to get involved. So the co-op has just been paying us out over four years after the transition. And next year that'll be paid off and we'll be clear. Is, is the way you did this fairly a common way or not as common? Because I'm guessing as, you know, oftentimes the owners don't maybe stay involved with the company as you did. It's probably more common than you would think. I mean, it was certainly pitched to me that that was a pretty easy option from the UW Center for Co-ops and other people that I was getting advice from. But even in a, you know, in a retirement scenario, a lot of times those um, business owners will transition out, self-finance the sale of the company, and then stay on for a year or two to help it succeed and get going before leaving. So I, I think it's, you know, think of it as friendly capital, um, an easy way to to have the co-op pay a person or a group of people out, but not require like um, a, a bank and, and securities on that, on that note. How does someone in the general public maybe become a member? How is profit shared? How does that all work with employees and, and members in 25 words or less? Yeah. <laughs> well, so worker ownership, worker owners, uh, companies are different than like a consumer, a food co-op like we've got in town. You can't just, can't just join. We have to hire you. You have to, uh, be not fired for two years and then, uh, <laughs> be not fired. For yeah, two years. <laughs> we have to not fire you for two years. Uh, and then you're eligible to join. And then there's a $5,000 buy-in of stock, uh, member stock and general stock in the company, which can be withheld out of paychecks or paid all at once. And then you're fully vested as a, an owner member in the co-op. Um, and then going forward, depending on the profitability that year of the company and, and how much 
money we want to retain in the business to reinvest in the business, what our tax situation is that year. We determine how much of the net income of the co-op is going to be allocated to members, owners, and or the business. And really that's just a that's in part a tax decision. It's where the income is going to reside for tax purposes. If it stays on the corporate side of the books, then it's subject to federal corporate income tax at the, the standard rate. And what, whatever we allocate to member owners um, flows through to their personal taxes. Actually, it's, it's a 1099 issue, so it's, it's sort of like a, it's a patronage 1099. And then they're liable to pay taxes on that income. And it's very flexible. That, that The co-op tax structure is, is incredibly flexible. So we can align how much income we keep on the corporate books based on how much depreciation or any other tax credits or benefits we can realize and zero out that liability. And then um, that... So, so the, just, just to be clear, so the business makes some money, right? You got some net profits. And then you, as an organization, decide how much you're going to keep within the business and how much you're going to profit share with the members. Yep. How, how do you determine how much money each gets out of that profit sharing? It's based on hours worked in the year. We wanted to make it, um, this part, a pretty equitable, flat distribution because we do have um, you know, different salaries and wages throughout the company based on your role and how much responsibility you carry, just like any other business. And so we thought, and this was the conversation at the beginning and it hasn't changed since then that it would be important to make sure that everybody had access to that profit, even uh, irrespective of their roles. And so we just, we say, okay, well, if this year it's going to be X number of dollars, we're going to allocate to membership as a whole. Then we just do the math on, we just run the numbers on how many hours each person has worked and divide that by the total number of hours worked of members. And that's the percent you divide by that, uh, multiply that, that dollar amount by, and that's what gets allocated to your account. Pretty simple. It seems like a pretty simple profit sharing model. Yeah. Um, has, I mean, how does this affect your uh, revenue recently? Do you think that this has benefited worker productivity and just overall how Northwind conducts themselves? Yeah, I think it has significantly. It's hard to tell because the renewables market has in itself just grown so much over the last few years that it's certainly partly that. But in terms of people's buy-in, their sense of ownership and responsibility for themselves and their jobs, that's been, that's increased significantly. It's, it's fantastic. It's one of the one main benefits of, of being a worker-owned co-op is hopefully you get long-term buy-in of your employees and they and they just excel at their work because they're working for themselves in a sense. So how many how many employees are at Northwind? 23 and there are 11 members right now. So about half of them are are owners. Yep. And, and the other ones perhaps maybe in the future are working towards that they haven't hit their two-year not being fired mark. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're we'll have up to 5 people come on next year, so that'll be pretty big jump mm -hmm. in hindsight thinking back on this decision uh would you go back and do it again absolutely yeah i think it's the best decision and it and it i mean it really helps set up the the company to be there for the long term and, and be less vested in like 
key individuals and, and hopefully, you know, people can stay on as long as they want to or, or not. And, but when they do go, the, the institution uh, is going to be in a good shape to carry on without them, you know. How is your, how is your decision-making done in your leadership? Is it, you know, you have 11 people who are owners. Is it divided equal or, you know, tell us how is that, how does that work? Yeah, so we have a pretty traditional org structure for management, day-to-day business operations. Um, for the great majority of, of Northwind's life, we've had that. We've Recently, we've been flattening it a little bit to try to get more of a team at the top that's cross-sectional, representing different parts of the business to have input and be good communicators out to the rest of the company. I, I guess the main difference in a worker ownership structure is that they're the members are ultimately the, the most important decision makers in that they elect a board of directors um, that govern, make big decisions, governance decisions. They oversee me as the CEO, um, the manager of the company, and they, and they have a voice in policy and big money decisions. Like we had to, we did a full member vote on whether to build a building in Amherst or not. Like that's, that's a significant enough decision where it needs to be a all member decision and other policies are significant enough where they, they have a voice in that. So, so let's, let's use that as an example. So, um, after you, you moved out of downtown here, you moved across the river, uh, onto Pearl street. Um, but recently 2019, you made the decision to build a, a brand new building in Amherst. Use your leadership model to illustrate how you chose to to make this move and and how members made such a big decision. Yeah, so we transitioned in 2017 to a co-op. I immediately went on leave because my wife had a baby. And then (laughs) the rest of that year was pretty chaotic. Uh, and, And going into 2018, we just because we had transitioned to worker ownership didn't mean that we had we weren't institutionalizing some of the structure, the decision-making, the policy that you really need to do on top of just legally transitioning. So we decided to go into a strategic planning mode and spent eight months, a very pretty significant investment with um, two outside facilitators to help us set some priorities, get to, get to just understand what membership meant and what perspectives on both business and what the business's priorities were from a member perspective and then establish objectives and goals um, various other things but the three three objectives that we came out with that were the top priority one of them was a new home because we were living in this cap services uh, business incubator space behind the family crisis center over there um, and it was it had been great for us and and it wonderful service that CAP provides, but we were living on top of each other, two to three people per office, and it was just too small. <laughs> so we needed a new place. We realized that, and, and we set the intent that that would be one of the primary things we wanted to accomplish over the next couple of years. It didn't, didn't even take us um, nine months to, to make that decision and get started on the project. Ultimately, we decided on Amherst Business Park because Amherst is such a great little community, we can sort of really fit in there well and have an outsized impact. A lot of our, most of us live between Point and Wapaka, so it's pretty central. 
also gets us a little bit closer to the Fox Valley as a market, um, a variety of reasons. But they've been fantastic to work with and super welcoming. And, you know, now the business park has got a really awesome brewery and a renewable energy company. And <laughs> they're excited. We're excited. Do you feel that this model is replicable, replicable for other comparable companies? And, and you've touched on some of the benefits, but what are some, what are some other benefits that other companies listening in might think about? It's, it's absolutely doable. I mean, it just, it sort of just depends on your, if you, if you're the business owner thinking about it, it just depends on what your priorities are for you. Um, but I think worker co-ops have demonstrated more resilience in more difficult economic times because they can more easily, um, think about a sense of shared sacrifice because they have a sense of shared prosperity as being uh, owners of the company. And, and so part of the pitch from the, the worker-owned co-op industrial complex is that you can, rather than laying people off, for example, you can collectively decide everybody's going to take a haircut on their pay and keep, but keep everybody employed, that sort of thing. Those sorts of measures have proven to be, give worker co-ops a lot more resilience and do better through hard times and come out of hard times in better places. That's one thing. I mean, long-term employee retention is a huge part of that too. Um, and, and probably just, you know, that, that sense of ownership, having people take more responsibility and take their jobs more, more to heart or more seriously gets more productivity out of everybody in the, in the company succeeds more, I think. Uh, but we solar companies are weirdly interested in worker ownership. We're we're part of a, a purchasing co-op, a nationwide purchasing co-op of solar companies um, to get to leverage buying power to get better pricing on equipment. It's called Amicus Solar Co-op, and I think there's sixty plus member companies now, and of those. 25 are worker owned. <laughs> it's, so it, it's, it's interesting that uh, you're part of that collective purchasing because that's one of the actions that has been initiated here locally, right? Midstate was in a, in a partnership with the city of Stevens Point and several other municipalities in addition to the Midwest Renewable Energy Association to have a, a solar group buy. And the details of this were a whole bunch of, of businesses and and homeowners all bought solar at the same time and then used that collective buying power to get a discount and to, and to share in that collective discount. Um, we've had this program for the, the past three years and, and Northwind has been selected as a contractor each time. Do you, do you think that there's parallels between that and, and a lot of the ways that you run your business? There's a, com there's a similar spirit to it, for sure, um, intent. And I, and I think that maybe participants feel like they're part of a group of, of people that are getting together to do this good thing together, not, not, not just benefiting their, their own household, but, you know, collectively we can have more impact. Maybe there's some, some commonalities there. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? 
<laughs> Wait, you can't you ask questions. <laughs> You're not allowed. What? What's so? Two other. Uh, there's a it, Warzella is employee owned. The, the Stevens Point Co-op, the market near downtown, is a co-op. Can you tell us some similarities and differences, maybe between those, so people can have another understanding of your your business? Yeah, uh, let's see if I can even remember the four major types of co-ops. There's a consumer uh, purchasing co-op that just aggregates buying power. So that's like the food co-op. Like the food co-op. Okay. It, it all it, it it's determined by what the the use of the entity of the co-op is. In that case, it's about basically buying power, and you patronize the co-op with your purchases. In our case. We patronize the, our co-op, Northwind, with our labor, um, and so the more the more we use, more we patronize or use the co-op's services. The co-op services, in this case, are to us as employees or owners, um, and, and it provides the opportunity um, to engage in labor and get paid for it, and then get compensated based on, based on the profit of the company, based on patronage or hours worked. And then there are um, there are other types of, of co-ops like producer co-ops, agricultural co-ops that that are essentially marketing mechanisms for farmers' products. They patronize it by how much they sell through the co-op. That'd be like a Cenex. Is that a example? Yeah, of that? Okay. a Cenex would be one, or any of the dairy co-ops around. Um, yeah. So what happens if a member decides to leave the co-op? Uh, well, then uh, we immediately buy out the $100 member stock from them, which then formally removes their ownership and ability to vote, for example, on things. And then they have a, a remaining stock balance of $4,900, which will probably decide. It's a board decision on the time frame, just in case there's a financial hardship or something at that moment. But if, if everything's fine, we'll buy that out within a couple of months. Um, and then that obligation is met and they're, they're done with the co-op. But, but then the way that we have, I talked a little bit about allocating member equity based on profits and hours worked and all that. Well, that we don't just pay that out fully in year one. We retain about 75% of that on our books to keep using in the business with the intention of rolling it out in the future. And so we have, we maintain on our balance sheet member equity accounts that hopefully build year over year. Um, and then if that, the person that has left has accrued X amount of equity, we need to, as a board, decide what schedule we're going to pay that out on whether we can right away or we need want to delay it for a period of time. It's all at-risk capital, so it's it's not like the employee can just go draw on my account. It's the board needs to decide its priorities as, as they relate to member equity and cash in the business versus paying out people. So there's a balance there, but there's a stock piece that's required, and then there's an equity piece that is sort of values-driven. Josh, you've been a member of our advisory committee, um, the group that kind of helps guide uh, our renewable energy program. 
and you've been a member of this this committee since we since we started the programs, and uh, in addition have hired many mid state grads. Um, do do you feel that this relationship has allowed you to attract and retain talent? And do you have any mid state grads in your uh, ownership circle? Yeah, mid state has been fantastic for a source of quality hires for us over the years, for sure. And it's certainly been a privilege to serve on that committee. Um, we have 10 mid-state graduates that work for us now. Uh, many are members and more will hopefully be in the future. Many people have, have proposed that solar and solar construction can be a big piece of, of post-COVID economic recovery. Do you share some of these thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, solar has the potential to create a, just an enormous amount of jobs. Right. And that's that's sort of the engine or the, the potential economic engine that that people talk about in terms of recover incorporating green tech into the recovery. Yeah. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that the number one fastest growing job from 2019 to 2029 is going to be a solar installer. That's absolutely true. It's been solar jobs have been growing for a long time, and they 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 far um, there's far more solar jobs than there are coal jobs in the country now, right? I don't talk about that much. That's that's us, a couple of other people around here's jobs like you and and Nick Hyla. So you you can talk about solar jobs. We just employ people, right? So that's good. Um, <laughs> I think more about the equity piece. But. What's next for Northwind Solar? We've sort of made it to a place where we can just keep improving at what we're doing. Um, just carrying on bringing solar plus storage to central Wisconsin homes, businesses, governments, and build equity in the community, uh, in our company, in our members, uh, build resilience, uh, and lessen our environmental impact. Thank you for listening to Profile, Central Wisconsin. Special thanks to Josh Dolzenberg from Northwind Solar and to Todd Kukan for joining me in this conversation. Profile is a production of Mid-State Technical College out of the Stevens Point campus. To learn more about Mid-State Technical College, go to mstc.edu or follow us on Facebook. Since 2008, Mid-State has been training solar installers. Today, the Renewable Energy Technician Program continues to be on the forefront of innovative technologies now also offering courses that address the latest solar modules and battery storage methods. One of the former founders of Northwind Solar, Craig Buckey, is now a full-time instructor and an industry-leading expert. On March 9th, MidState will be hosting Cougar Connections, a virtual program showcase. You can sign up for a 30-minute virtual appointment to learn about any of our programs and meet with instructors and industry leaders. Register on our website. To learn more about the Portage County Business Council and everything they're doing to connect and grow our business community, visit portagecountybiz.com. That's biz with a Z. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume your audio media. It's the mission of Mid-State Technical College to transform lives through the power of teaching and learning. Help us work toward that goal by sharing this story. Thanks for listening.